a slogan on our money, and it goes, In God we trust. In God we trust. And it gets passed from hand to hand, perhaps thousands of times a day, who knows, maybe millions of times a day, from person to person, in God we trust. Which is really ironic considering the spiritual state that our nation is in today. Not a whole lot of real trust for God. The question for us, though, is how much do we trust God? As God's people, as Christians, how much do we really trust God? How much do we believe that He has our best interests at heart? It might sound like an easy question to answer at first. And you know, when things are going well, it is easy to answer. When it's about 75 degrees and white puffy clouds and a gentle breeze on our back and the sunshine on our face, we can feel like we have a lot of trust in God. But then we have trials. The sky grows dark, the wind blows, the rain falls, the car breaks down. Money gets tight, the water heater fails, someone gets sick, needs to go to the hospital, even dies, or a tragic accident. The rain falls and you hope you're in a dream, but you don't wake up. It never stops. You realize, no, this is not a dream. It's real. And we cry out to God, and we ask for help, and we examine ourselves. We look, is there something I need to change and I need to address? And maybe God doesn't answer right away. Or maybe the answer is no, or not right now, or he lets someone die. Or maybe the answer is that the trial goes on and on and on. We still trust in God, but we may feel disoriented, we may get confused, we may be worried. We still believe God is there, we still know He's there, we know He's guiding our life, but we hurt. And we ask questions. Why is this happening? Why does it keep going on? Why didn't he deliver us? Especially when the scriptures talk about how much he takes care of his people. There's a psalm that talks about this situation. Many psalms talk about it, actually. But let's look at one. Psalm 73. And verse 1. The writer talks about his, his struggle in difficulties, and what helped him to grow in trust. Psalm 73 and verse 1, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, 
to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I was serving God. I was doing my best. I was obeying Him. And it seemed like I had all kinds of trials that others didn't have. They were just bopping along and could care less about God. They seemed to have no money problems, no health problems, no difficulties. Why me? Verse 13, it says, Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. I was examining myself. I was thinking, what have I done something wrong? Have I sinned? What am I missing? Verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. I went into the sanctuary of God. When the writer got his eyes on something else, then the perspective changed. Notice in verse 21. He said, thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You know, when children are small and scared and you're going through the parking lot, actually the parents are more scared that the kids are going to run off and get run over. What do you do? You hold their hand. You hold their hand. And guide them through a dangerous spot. He said, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28. It is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works. An interesting psalm. Because it starts out with the writer Asaph in a pretty deep moment. Pretty deep hole. And struggling with some questions of life. But ends in a totally different light. With something different at the end. His eyes are opened to the big picture, to a different reality. What a transformation from discouraged and and confused to encouraged and at peace. What is the key? He saw something different at the end. He looked for something different at the end. And that was very important. Brethren, today I'd like to talk about trust in God. Not just believing that he exists. The demons believe that he exists and tremble. It's much more beyond that. It's much more than that. It's believing that he really is on our side. It's believing that we really can depend on him and can trust in him. 
And he's dedicated to taking care of us, even in trials. Dr. Meredith has encouraged us to increase our faith. He gave a sermon a few weeks ago about that, to grow in faith. And I'm going to talk about one crucial element that can increase our trust in God. Trust and faith, and in some of the words that are used, uh, translated trust and faith, are very closely related in, in, uh, in the original, in the New Testament. So we're going to talk about <clears throat> increasing our trust in God and something, one thing, one thing that can help us to do that. And that is gaining more spiritual sight. Gaining more spiritual sight. We have the saying, seeing is believing. You know, if I see it, if I have it in front of me, then I'll believe it. Then I know it's there. We trust those things that we've seen with our eyes. We trust the people that we've spent time with, whom we've grown to know, whom we've developed a relationship with, who we see eyeball to eyeball with. There's no... No, uh, no substitute for being able to look eyeball to eyeball with a person. We trust those that we have that relationship with, unless we learn that they're untrustworthy. <clears throat> and then that's a different story. But it takes time to, to have that relationship, doesn't it? It takes contact. It takes seeing firsthand how the person responds the way they behave, the way they react, etc. But what about God? How do we do that with him if he's invisible and we can't see him? It still is about knowing him and seeing him firsthand and getting to know him in an ongoing relationship. It's just that we have to see him with spiritual sight. We have to look for him. Ecclesiastes 2.14 says, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. The wise man's eyes are, are seeing things that are beyond the physical. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. The longer we live, the more we experience, we, we see and understand how profound that is. That there's so much more than just the, the around. There's so much more than just the things that happen around us, the physical. <clears throat> now this is not just our own faith, our own human faith. It is Christ in us. Notice in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Dr. Meredith reads this a lot, but it's not copyrighted. Well, I guess the Bible is copyrighted, but um, this scripture we can read as well. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, as he explains it should be of the Son of God. That's Check it out if you haven't. That's what it says in the interlinear. It should be 
of the Son of God. It's not our own faith. We don't work it up. We don't sort of gear it up. It's God in us. It's Christ in us. It's His Holy Spirit which gives us the kind of faith and trust that we need. He said, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. We are called by the Father. He grants us repentance. Christ begins to live in us through his Spirit when we are baptized, when we repent, when we have hands laid on us. He starts the process after the Father calls us. He's the author of our faith. He's the finisher of our faith. He will complete us. He will guide us. He will bring us to perfection. We ask for his help. You know, one of the men that came to Jesus said, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me to trust you. Fill me with your your mind, your thoughts, your attitude. It's not our own that we just work up. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit. And the things that are revealed to us through his Holy Spirit. He says, verse 14, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. There are things that we have to spiritually discern that we cannot figure out ourselves, cannot see with our own eyeballs. We have to see in a different way. <clears throat> we see through spiritual sight. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, and that's the key. We have God's Holy Spirit, the mind of Christ. In us. So we can see. But we need more help, don't we? We need more ability to see those things. We need God's help. We need His Spirit even more in our life. As Mr. Ames mentioned just a few moments ago in the announcements, I just want to make a short comment about. The, um, the address Mr. Martin Montgomery uh, made, again, to the young people up at camp last Thursday. As he mentioned, if you haven't watched it yet, you really should. It's on the Living Youth Program's Facebook page. A very heartfelt, touching talk to the campers, of course, in the, in the wake of his daughter's death. Morgan Montgomery, 19-year-old. And he's talking to the campers and to the staff, encouraging them to have perspective, to see what needs to be seen, and even to pray for the driver of the boat who was responsible for killing his daughter. 
and to look for whatever good can come out of a horrible situation. Mr. Montgomery was, was showing an example of spiritual sight and helping the campers and the staff to see something that they need to see as well. Really a remarkable, a remarkable example. He's not looking at it physically. He's trying to help them see spiritually. Powerful message. Brethren, we all need more spiritual perspective to face our trials, to understand why they happen. To grow in trust in God because that's what's necessary to please Him. You know the scripture. We talk about it a lot. We read it a lot. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. Without faith or trust, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without a profound trust in God, we cannot please him. We cannot grow the way we need to grow. We cannot accomplish the things that we need to. We cannot prepare as he wants us to prepare for his kingdom. So, We need spiritual sight. Let's talk about gaining more spiritual sight in the time we have today. In order to grow in our personal trust in God. In God we trust. In God we trust. There are some things that we must do to grow in trust. Number one, to grow in trust for God, we must seek to see God. Easy to say, easy to say, easy to write down, but very difficult to do. We trust those that we can see. You know that. The more we know a person, again, the more we see them, the more we, on a regular basis, we interact with them. We know them. We can trust them. How acquainted with God are we? How much do we trust God? Him, really know Him. It takes time to develop a relationship of trust. How much do we really see Him as a reality in our life, as a priority in our life? Someone who is a part of our life. If we don't see Him, we're going to misread Him. We're going to assume He's thinking things that that He's not, frankly. There are some interesting passages that talk about that. In Psalm 50 and verse 21, he's talking to the wicked. He said, you thought I was altogether like you. He said, those you who don't know me, you, you think I'm like you. You think I'm, I'm like a, a carnal human being with human nature. But I'm not like you. I'm different. Psalm 55 and verse 8. Let's, I'm sorry, Isaiah 55 and verse 8. Let's go ahead and turn to that one. Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 8. Isaiah 55. <clears throat> 
in verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God isn't like us. God isn't from here. He's different. He thinks differently than the carnal human being does. And so we can misunderstand him, especially in difficult times. Let's go to the book of Job. Let's go to the book of Job. Whenever, Whenever I'm faced with trials and difficulties, I seem to find myself going to the book of Job. There's so many profound lessons and thoughts and perspectives that Job, the book of Job, shows us. And last Sunday was a tragic and horrific day. Profoundly sad day, the day when Morgan was killed on that lake in Ohio. But others of our brethren have have suffered profound loss over the last weeks and months or are suffering different trials and and difficulties. And need encouragement. Let's read in Job chapter 1 and verse 1. He says, there was, a na- there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. You know, he'd be a wealthy man by our standards today as well. But a good man, a good man. God commended him as being a good man, not just having a lot of wealth. And if you never read the, the rest of the book, <clears throat> I presume most of you have read it in here, if you never read, had never read it, you'd never guess the rest of the story. Because God said he was blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. You, could, you would never believe what happens next. Especially when, God, when it says, verse 8, that God said, There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. God was fond of Job. He thought a lot of Job. He looked down and he was pleased with Job. He was doing a lot of things right. Now, he had some things to learn. Granted, he needed to to go to another level of spiritual development. But God wasn't punishing Job. He wasn't playing a cruel joke on Job. He wasn't neglectful of, of Job. He didn't fall asleep at the wheel and then was surprised when this happened to Job. None of that. When we are in a trial, how do we think God feels about us? What do you think God says about you 
when you were in a trial. Could it be that he's saying some of these same things? Could it be that he is defending your record? If you're obeying God? If you are walking with God? You know, usually when we're in a, in a trial, we don't assume that, do we? We assume he's unhappy with us. We assume he's displeased with us. We might assume he's ashamed of us. And we sometimes are ashamed to go before him because we, we respond that way. Maybe we've done something wrong. Maybe we need to examine ourselves, of course, no doubt. But could God be happy with our progress and he just wants to see us at the next level when we're in a trial? Well, that, that's one of the lessons here that we see in the book of Job. He needed to see God more clearly. What about us? Do we see the kind of God we serve? Do we see what he's like? Do we see that, no, he's not ready to pounce and ready to smash us at any moment just because we make a mistake? Do we really know God? Or are we distant from him so we might assume or presume that he's ways that he's really not? He says, trust me. He says, trust me. I'll take care of you. You know, we've all heard the story of a sort of the proverbial story of a dad who wants to teach his son to swim. So he gets in the water and the son is frightened and standing at the water's edge. And he, son, jump. I'll catch you. Trust me. Right? And then the little boy jumps and the father moves out of the way. And he falls in the water and sputters and treads water and, and finds his way back to the top. And what was the lesson? His dad says, don't trust anybody. Have you heard that? Don't trust anybody. That's your first lesson, son. What a horrible lesson, don't you think, from a father? I hope none of you learned to swim that way. Because a father or a mother should be one that we learn to trust. Now, you know, that's why it's so important that we as, as parents really strive to be trustworthy to our children. Because if we say things, we need to back it up. We make mistakes, sure. We, 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 we acknowledge them. But we need to be trustworthy. Because our children are, are getting a model, are getting a perspective about what God is like through their inter interaction with us. And it's going to be either easy to trust God or not as easy to trust God based on the model we show them. Now, not everyone had parents who gave them a positive trust were the example. If you didn't, you can still build a trusting relationship with God. 
you can still do it. Why? Because it's not up to us. It's Christ living in us. He can do it. He's the author and finisher of our faith. As we ask for his help. Again, the man who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We don't have to be shackled by the experiences of the past. But even if we do have a positive example of our parents, we may still have a hard time slipping into the mode of, God, you said you would catch me. You said you would prosper me, and now I'm drowning in debt. You said you would guide me, and, and, and I have a very difficult family problem. You said you would heal me, and this goes on and on and on, or I'm getting worse. You said you'd protect my family, and now I lost a loved one. We can feel like he let us drop. But brethren, does God ever let us drop? Absolutely not. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. It's just how we feel. And that's why we can't trust our feelings. That's why we have to see Him. We need spiritual sight to see our God. And Scripture reveals Him to us. Notice Hebrews 13 and verse 5. It says, For He Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The whole world might leave or forsake us, but God will never leave us or forsake us. He says it's a promise, and he says God never lies. Never lies. It's not in him. He cannot lie. First, that's in Titus 1 and verse 2. He says, Going on in Hebrews 13, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly say the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? We all know intellectually that God doesn't drop us, but sometimes we don't feel it inside. Because it hurts when things go wrong. We get confused. Psalm 103 and verse 8. Psalm 103 and verse 8. But that's when we need to seek God more urgently. We need to ask God to help Him, to help us to see Him through His Holy Spirit, through Christ living in us. That we need to see Him. We need to understand Him. We need to know Him. We need to have a even closer relationship with Him through our daily contact, especially when we're hurting and in trial. Psalm 103 and verse 8. He says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. What is God like? What is God like? What's His character? What's His nature? This, this book is filled with what is God like. And as we read it, as we feed on it, it, those words live in us, and then we talk to Him, we pray to Him, we walk with Him, we see Him interacting in our life. We experience Him. It's spiritual sight. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will He 
keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Brethren, we need spiritual sight to not just have it up here, but have it in here as well. To really know God, to really trust God, we need to ask for more of the ability to see him, really see him in our life and understand him and walk with him and get to know him better. Number two, number two, to grow in trust in God, we must recognize the adversary clearly. Not only do we need to get to know God and see him more clearly, we, we need to recognize there's an enemy. There is an adversary. Second Corinthians 2 and verse 11 says, We are not ignorant of his devices. We are not ignorant of the fact that Satan, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now why is this important that we recognize our adversary? Because he is actively on the attack in trying to destroy trust between God and his servants. Notice in uh, Genesis chapter 3, go all the way back to the beginning. This is how Satan started, and he's never stopped. Remember what happened, how God had renewed the face of the earth. He separated the waters from the land. He repopulated the land and the waters, the forests, the fields, made Adam and Eve, had a plan in, in place for their repopulating the earth and subduing the earth. And he gave them instruction on how to live, what to do, what not to do, what to eat, what not to eat. And then along came the serpent. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. His statement was about eating the fruits. What would happen to them if they ate it? But the unmistakable message was, you can't trust God. You can't trust God. Satan was saying, I don't care what he said. I'm going to tell you the truth. You can't trust him. And isn't that the message that Satan the devil has been pushing ever since? You can't trust God. <clears throat> Some of you may remember the old animated movie, uh, Jungle Book. 
about this boy who was was lost in the jungle and and uh, his adventures and you know the, the different animals that were trying to eat him. And there's this uh, there's this scene where this huge giant snake tries to beguile him, not just to to snatch him, but to beguile him. And and the snake is coiled around this tree, and he's coming down out of the tree. And he's singing this song, and I'm not going to sing it for you. But it's, trust in me. Trust in me. You don't think those producers didn't read the Bible? I mean, that was exactly the message Satan the devil was giving. The sad part, in the real story, it wasn't make-believe. In the real story, in the, in the tragic story of humankind, it has been one disaster after another. In the lives of human beings who have taken the bait, taken the doubt that you can't trust God. Go your own way. Do your own thing. And Satan's still here. He's still trying to erode the trust in God wherever and whenever he can. Let's go back to Job again. You might leave a marker in there because we'll go back a number of times. And again, the, the book of Job is so unusual and interesting because it also gl- gives us a glimpse of the spirit world and this really fascinating interchange between the Lord and Satan. By the way, if you haven't um, seen it or read it recently, there is a Tomorrow's World article by Mr. John O'Gwen, I think called Seven Lessons of Job or, or something like that, <clears throat> um, may be helpful as well as we think about it, some of these lessons from, from Job. But notice in verse 6, we read the first few verses before. Verse 6, now it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and from on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Again, how did God look at Job? What was his attitude towards Job? Brethren, when we are in trials, how does he look at us? Yes, if we need to uh, repent. Yes, if we need to examine ourselves, we must do it. However, if we're walking with Him, God is God's on our side. He's, he's there to help us. He wants us to succeed. <clears throat> he's not quick to accuse. Have you seen my servant Job? None like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. Now, 
Again, stop just for a moment as we think about this. Job had no idea this was going on at the time. Right? He didn't have a script handed to him as this was happening. But somehow, he was inspired to understand that this conversation was going on uh, later on. But think about it again. A conversation between God and Satan. And God commends his servant in the conversation. What about us? What about when we are in trials? What is God saying about us? God is not quick to accuse. There is an accuser of the brethren. Notice in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Let's go over there. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Satan is seeking to destroy trust. Satan is seeking to infuse doubt. And we read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the, the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. You know, the irony is that God not only, that Satan not only accuses the brethren, but Satan accuses God. Satan tries to, to accuse God in, in our ear. He, he tries to send and broadcast messages of you can't trust God. He's accusing God of not being trustworthy. He wants us to get it mixed up. He wants us to think that it's God who hates us. And God who's accusing us as opposed to Satan. And nothing could be further from the truth. Brethren, when we get discouraged, when we are in grinding trials, when we are in ongoing difficulties or sudden calamities that come upon us suddenly, we need not only to see God more clearly, we need to see the adversary clearly. We need to see his fingerprints because he leaves his fingerprints wherever he goes. He's the destroyer, he's the accuser of the brethren, and he's trying to destroy our relationship with God. He tries to drive a wedge between us and God. We talk about the armor of God. Well, what do we use to deflect the fiery darts of the wicked? The shield of faith, the shield of trust. Our trust, God's living in us, Christ's trust in us. And he tries us to get us to drop that shield. He tries to infuse doubt in our minds that God is not really there. He doesn't really love us. He doesn't really care. And he does it day and night. Now, in this situation, God did allow what happened to Job. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he didn't originate it. Isn't that interesting? It was Satan who originated it. It was Satan who attacked Job. We need to recognize that source because he's going to get more and more angry as the days draw near to Christ's return. We 
continue reading Revelation chapter 12. He's talking about the brethren. It says, verse 11, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. He doesn't want you and me to trust God. Why? Because if we trust God, if we have a close relationship with God, we're going to grow. We're going to develop. We're going to become something that God can really use. We're going to be a part of the family of God, the team that is replacing Satan governing this earth. And he knows that. But he has to try to destroy our trust in God. And he does everything he can to slander God and get us to think negative thoughts about God. We've got to be aware of his devices. We've got to be alert and on the lookout. John chapter 10 and verse 10 says, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. <clears throat> Jesus is laying it out straight. He's saying, look, the, the nature, my nature compared to Satan's nature could not be more different. That I have come to bring life, an abundant life. And Satan is the one who destroys and steals and kills. When we're in trials, we must not succumb to Satan's negative talk. We must not be overwhelmed by that. Now it doesn't mean that it's wrong to mourn or to grieve or to vent. You know, we, we need to do that sometimes when we're down. And brethren, we need to not judge those who are grieving and mourning or worried in a, in a trial. We need to comfort them. We need to, to cry with them. We need to help them. Oftentimes, sometimes, we don't know what to say. So we don't go up to them. And yet it's a very lonely time when you're suffering in a trial. Even if we don't know what to say, we need to go up to them. Even if just to say, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. We need to comfort them. We need to sit with them. <clears throat> but if we're in it, we need to work through the pain and suffering and not let Satan's message of, of negativity toward God overwhelm us. Number three. Number three, to grow in trust for God. Not only do we need to see God better, we need to see the adversary better. We also need to see what God is doing in our life. We need to see what God is doing in our life. Job chapter 1 again and verse 9. Job 1 and verse 9, we read it before, but I'm just going to refer to it. He said, 
Satan answered the Lord, said, Does God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Now stop and think about this. There might be conversations of the same nature between God and Satan about you. And God might be commending you for your faith and your obedience. And Satan might be saying, yeah, it's because you blessed them so much. You have put a hedge around them. Isn't it interesting that Satan admitted that God does put a hedge around his people? Out of his own mouth, he said it. God puts a hedge around those who serve him. God gave Job special protection. That was reality. We have special protection. We have a safety net, a perimeter that the world simply does not have. Brethren, do you see that hedge around you? Do we appreciate that hedge around us? Yes, he allows it to open from time to time. A bit. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But he gives us a hedge. Think of all the things he protects us from. The, the rest of the world who, who are not called yet, who don't have this precious opportunity to have God living in them yet. They are in Satan's world. They are in his grasp. He is a cruel master. He hates humanity, even those who are under his sway. Wars going on around the world, ten major wars right now, by the definition of a thousand deaths or more per year, and many other wars beyond that. Thousands killed every year, more displaced from their homes. Millions displaced because of the war in Syria. Millions of people have lost their homes, are in refugee camps, or have struggling to find somewhere to live. We read in the bulletin today about hundreds who have died because of flooding in Asia recently, and hundreds of thousands who have lost their homes. <clears throat> Brethren, does God put a hedge around his people, and do we appreciate that, and do we see that, and do we thank God for it? The people in the world, they don't know why they're suffering. They struggle with the meaning of, of why things happen. Why they have been born into certain circumstances and, and, and there's no way out. Why their family has been torn apart. Why warfare has ravaged their village or their home. Why they don't have enough to eat. A billion people today are do not have enough to eat? Why? They don't know. And it's going to continue until a third of the entire planet perishes. 
God has a plan for them. They will know eventually, but right now they don't. And yet God promises to put a hedge around his faithful, zealous people now and even in the future. We talk about the place of safety, the place of refuge as protection from the tribulation. We pray for protection. We pray for guidance. We pray for help. Thank God that he has called us out of the world and that we can be a part of that group that he is giving a hedge to. Now, I know what happened, Job. uh, Satan requested to strike Job, and God allowed it. He opened the hedge. Job chapter 1 and verse 11. I'm sorry, in verse uh, 13. Now, let's read verse 11. But now He says, but now stretch out your hand, touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing, the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed, they've killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came. The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you this was all happening in, in rapid succession to Job. And while he was still speaking, another came, and your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and it fell. And they're dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. God opened the hedge. And this happened to Job. All in one day. Horrific trial. We know that Satan came back and said he wanted to inflict Job with even more. Job chapter 2 and verse 5. Satan answered the Lord, verse 4. And said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And he struck, he went out from the presence of the Lord, and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. There was a hedge, and God allowed it to lift. But notice something else very carefully. God dictated exactly the terms 
under which it was going to lift. He gave the details, down to the details, what the terms were, exactly what Satan was allowed to do, and he could go no further, not one inch. Brethren, think about this in terms of our life. Again, speculating if God and Satan had a conversation about you, a trial. God's commanding you and Satan's accusing you. And God says, okay, I'll let you test them. But here's the parameter. This is how it's going to be. No, no more. Brethren, is God in control? Is God in control? We're not asking why it happened yet. We'll come to that in a second. <clears throat> but God is in complete control. He wasn't asleep on the job. He wasn't neglectful. When Job got sick, God was very much aware of it. And he geared it so it would stretch Job. He allowed it so it would help Job to grow in a way, in some way. But that he wouldn't be overwhelmed. Isn't that what God is doing with us? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. God does not throw us in the deep end, even though we feel like it sometimes. God doesn't stand in the water and tell us, jump and I'll catch you and then move out of the way, even though we feel like it sometimes. He doesn't do that. He stretches us, yes. He wants us to grow. He wants us to expand our capacity to trust Him, to endure. But He's not cruel, He's not cavalier, He's not neglectful. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. He says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful. God can be trusted. That's the message throughout the whole Bible. God is saying, trust me. Satan is saying, don't trust God. But God's word said, he is trustworthy. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God is in complete and absolute control whenever we are in a trial. And God is pushing our comfort zone. Yes, he is. He's expanding our ability to handle things. Yes, he is. He's forcing us to grow. Yes, he is. And that's uncomfortable. God is testing our mind. He's testing our thoughts and motives. And as we see God better, we're going to have more faith. We're going to have more trust. And we need to ask God to, to again, <clears throat> show himself more clearly to us. Not just working it up. 
and ask him to show us what he is doing in our life. He spreads a hedge. He puts a hedge around us. And sometimes he lets it come up. We need to ask him for understanding. We need to ask him and to help us to, to fathom what he's doing in our life as we are walking with him. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 28. We need to see his actions in our life. We need to see his hand in our life. That he has not left us. He's not dropped us. He's not allowed us to, to fall. But he's guiding us through something that is for our good. We need to see that. And we can only see it through spiritual sight. Matthew 10 and verse 28. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear those who rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? Now, what does this have to do with fearing God and, and understanding how God has all power? And he's the one that we need to respect. He's the one we need to have all for. What do the sparrows have to do with, you know, God made the universe. God upholds the universe. God is, is making everything work. God is guiding events all over the earth. What does that have to do with sparrows? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore you are of more value than many sparrows. In other words, yes, God is running the whole universe, and yet he pays attention to detail. He sees every detail. He sees when a sparrow falls out of a tree. He counts the hairs on our head. And sometimes that changes from day to day, doesn't it? Some comes out you know, in the shower. So he has a recount. He pays attention to detail. He's guiding our life. He's not cavalier. Jesus Christ is telling these, us these things so we'll get it, so we'll understand that God is, is helping us. He's on our side. His capacity to keep the whole universe running and yet also see our needs on a moment-by-moment basis. God is not cavalier. <clears throat> you know, one of the scriptures Mr. Montgomery quoted in his message to the campers and staff, Psalm 116, verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. If he notices even a sparrow falling, brethren, does he, is he aware? Was he aware when one of his saints died? Did he know what was going on? Of course. The Living Bible says it this way, His loved ones are very precious to him and he does not lightly let them die. He's got a plan for us. We need to ask for him to help us to see that more clearly. And help us to see that when the hedge opens, it's to train us, to, to test us, not to trust him less, 
but to learn to trust him more. Because the more we get to know him, the more we understand what he's doing, the more we trust him. Number four, the last one. We need to grow in trust for God. To do that, we must see the answers that he gives. Everybody asks questions when they're in a trial. Usually a lot of why questions. The rest of the book, the book of Job, is basically how Job struggled with the question of why. Why did you do this, God? If you didn't do it, why did you allow it to happen? If it's in your power to stop it, why didn't you stop it? He had a lot of questions. God let him vent. God let him get them out of his system. Let's go back there to Job again. And then God answered. God always answers. God always answers. We may not feel like he answers, but he always answers. Job chapter 38 and verse 1. What was his answer? We're going to not read all of it, but here just picking up a few snatches of it. Then the Lord, verse 1, answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Prepare yourself like a man. I'll question you. You shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who laid its cornerstone of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. He's saying, Job, look, I put together the earth, okay? I put together the earth. I put together the sun. I hung the stars, okay? Just a little perspective. Just a little perspective. Job 38 and verse 34, notice. Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the mind? Who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens and clumps and the clouds cling together? Chapter 39, verse 1. Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Or can you mark when the deer gives birth? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they bear young? They bow down. They bring forth their young, their offspring. They're healthy. They grow strong with grain. They depart and do not return to them. Chapter 41, verse 1, can you draw Leviathan with a hook? Can you snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to, to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Will you play with him as a bird? Will you leash him for your maidens? Will your companions make a banquet of him? God answered Job. It wasn't the answer that Job was looking for. God, Job was asking why. God did not answer that question. He gave him a different answer. He gave him a different answer. You know, sometimes 
we tell our children to do something, and they ask why. And sometimes it's not appropriate or necessary or the time and place to explain every detail. And we say, because I said so. You're going to have to trust me. Essentially, that's what God was saying. Trust me. I know what I'm doing. I built everything. I run the universe, Job. You're going to have to trust me. And you know what? It wasn't the answer Job wanted, but it was the answer Job needed. Chapter 42 and verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do everything, that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you and you shall answer me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. I can see you better. And that is sufficient. And I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes that I didn't see it before. You know, sometimes the answer is we don't know right now. You can't see it yet. There is a reason. There is a reason, but you can't see it yet. God has a reason for everything he does or allows. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. It's just that sometimes we don't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there. doesn't mean it's not there. And that's where we trust him. But that's why we need to see him more clearly. We need to see his workings more clearly. And we need to look for his answers. When we're crying out for answers, we need to look for his answers. But not just to the answer of the question we asked. We need to be aware of maybe there's a different answer that he's trying to get us to see, just like in Job's case. And that's actually the answer we need. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. You know, everything in this world is not yielding good fruits. Although in the end, God will use it to bring as many who want to be in his family into his family. But with those who he is working with directly, he says all things work together for good and God is not a liar. Just because we can't always see the good yet. But we can see that God works things out for good in one way or the other. As Mr. Ames mentioned, we're already hearing of some comments from others not in the church who have heard Mr. Montgomery's address and were overwhelmed by his attitude, by his positivity, by his perspective in helping those campers and staff. 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 26. We struggle when we're in trials, and God helps us to understand. Do we understand every answer? Of course not. But he helps us to understand what we need to understand. He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. With groanings that cannot be uttered. Sometimes when we don't even know what to say, God's Spirit in us is able to <clears throat> communicate. And, and, and God, we, we are... God knows what we're doing. God knows what we're dealing with. That's the point. Notice verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what is he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly await for it with perseverance. There are things that we cannot see yet. And that's why we hope for them. That's why we need faith. That's why we need trust. And that's why we need to ask God for spiritual sight. To see more and more a glimpse of these things. Of God himself of our adversary, of what God is doing in our life, and the answers that he has for us. We can't see it physically. Going back to verse 18, notice Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this is perspective, brethren. This is spiritual sight are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The sufferings of this present evil age, Paul said, are not worthy to be compared. But that is what spiritual sight will give you. Paul could only say it because he was looking through spiritual eyesight. Brethren, God is there. He's watching. He's helping. He's on our side. He will guide us. He has a plan. We don't always know the plan. We're on a need-to-know basis. He gives us what we need to know, sometimes not more. But the more we seek him and strive to see him and recognize the adversary and appreciate the hedge and understand and appreciate that sometimes it's lifted so we can grow and look for the answers, then we will not be shaken. Let's turn in conclusion to Psalm 62. Psalm 62. Our God is good. Our God is trustworthy. Our God is faithful. Our God will never leave us nor forsake us. 
We can trust him. In our God, we trust. Psalm 62 and verse 5. He said, My soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved or shaken, it says in the margin. I'm not going to be rattled. Sometimes I'm confused. Sometimes I don't understand. But I'm going to be settled in Him. I'm going to get settled when I seek Him. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Brethren, as we consider trials that we have, trials that our brethren have had. Let's be so thankful that God has given us the ability to see spiritual things. Let's strive to see more of those spiritual things. And let's be thankful that it is in God we can trust.